I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. But I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah will have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man... Our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had not done anything, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. He will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay? To make out of the same lump one vessel for honored use and another for dishonorable use. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called? Not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Indeed, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. Let's pray. Lord, we've read much, and the questions before us are deep. And the issues of justice 
can trouble our minds. We're sinners, Lord, and even when we are redeemed, there is still corruption affecting us in every part of our being. And apart from your word and spirit, we cannot make sense of life. We cannot make sense of your word or your work. But you have furnished us with your word and spirit. You have called us not to live by whims or emotion. You have called us to live according to truth and to make your truth known. And so it is vital that we be eager to receive, to understand, to apply your truth to our lives. We ask that you would grant us grace to this end this evening. And we ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll say, as I have prayed, our text tonight was long. And our subject is deep. And we face serious, yet very common questions in the matters raised by the Heidelberg Catechism. These questions might be asked by what we would call antagonistic critics. They could be asked by sincere skeptics. And they might be our questions sometimes, even as devoted believers who are struggling to understand how a sovereign, holy God is both just and merciful in his dealings with sinful humanity. These are the questions that can trouble you, that can trouble me, and they may trouble us in our own minds, or they may trouble us when our children come to us or our grandchildren with questions. They may trouble us when, when that friend who we would call a sincere skeptic, not one who is an antagonistic critic, but one who really wants to understand our faith, comes with the hard questions that we ourselves are wrestling with. point us back to the second question of the Heidelberg Catechism, and we're going back about four weeks or so, which asked what one must know to live and to die in the joy of the comfort of salvation. And the answer was threefold. First, one must know how great our sins and misery are. Second, we must know how we are delivered from our sins and misery. And third, we must know how we are to be thankful to God for such deliverance. Now that's an important statement because today in, in our culture, in, in the evangelical culture of our country, very often the Christian life is reduced down to, to emotion and feeling or even whim. And, and the mark of a spiritual life very often is tied prominently or even preeminently to how you feel about yourself or how you feel about God. Feeling is not unimportant in the Christian life, but our feelings and emotions will lie to us. And our faith must be built upon the truth of God, and that's why he has given us his truth in his word. And if our lives are not built upon the word, the living word Jesus Christ to be sure, but the written word by which we know him, if our lives instead and our faith are built upon how we feel about ourselves, about others, about God, uh, on our whims or our inclinations, then we will find that we are remarkably unsteady spiritually in life. And so the Heidelberg Catechism 
has taken pains, it has gone to lengths to demonstrate that we need the law of God to expose our sin. And when that sin is exposed, then we need to understand its origin and its extent in our lives and in creation. And all of that only raises more questions, and the questions are hard, and we need answers. And so the questions tonight, again, are three. And I might synopsize them from the Heidelberg Catechism in in asking, is it just or fair for God to require obedience from sinners who are incapable of rendering perfect obedience? Is that just or is it fair? If we're truly rendered incapable of obedience by sin, will God then really punish our sin? And if God does indeed bring judgment on sinners who are incapable of doing good, can we really say that he is merciful? Heidelberg, like Westminster, proceeds very logically. And it really anticipates the questions that we have. Do those questions resonate with you? Have you? Or do you even now wrestle or struggle with these questions? Heidelberg Catechism structures much of the the first two-thirds of the Catechism around Romans, and we find answers here. And and what we've read here in chapter 9 really is addressing uh, Jew-Gentile distinctions. But I'll mention that that before we get to chapter 9 and and chapter 8, the Apostle Paul has, has been presenting life in the Spirit. The early chapters of Romans expose the wickedness and rebellion of man and his sin against God. But then there is presented the the, the promise of of God's redeeming power and the blessing of life in the spirit. And the blessing of Christ's work applied to sinners so that we are granted new life and salvation as a gracious gift that can never be earned because none of us can obey the law of God. And it's at that point that there's a kind of shift because the Apostle Paul in some ways is juxtaposing those who have believed the promises of the gospel, Jew and Gentile alike, who have received in in faith the promises of the gospel with those who are Jewish who have every advantage and and who've been given the law. And so we hear him say at the beginning of our text, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. That's a remarkable thing for the Apostle Paul to say. That he could wish himself accursed of God to lift the curse from his kinsmen who have not believed, who have have not embraced the truth of the gospel. I wonder if there's anybody in your life who you would say you'd be willing to go to hell for. That's effectively what he's saying. Maybe we would say that for our children. That's not how it works, and the Apostle Paul knows that. In fact, he knows there's only one who can bear the pains of hell for others, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. But he goes on 
to declare that they had every advantage. His kinsmen who refused the gospel. He says they are Israelites. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. And he's making plain, the Apostle Paul is making plain that these Jews are refusing to believe the good news out of their own volition and not out of any fault of God's. God has not disadvantaged them. God has not done any injustice to them by requiring their obedience for he gave them what was needed and they in their sin rejected it. This is rejection of God's covenant through the patriarchs. And again, the address here is to a Jew-Gentile distinction, but if we take a step back, this is the condition of all humanity after the fall of man in the garden in what we call the covenant of creation or sometimes the covenant of works. The same truth can be applied to all humanity that all have the witness of God's creation. So that according to Romans 1, his eternal power and divine nature are clearly made known. But man has chosen to reject knowledge of God in his sin. And so the sin of his people Israel is only greater yet. For they not only, like all humanity, have been made in the image and likeness of God, but now that it's corrupted in sin, have refused the witness of creation. They have received the witness of the law. The revelation that God gave through Moses. They have every advantage, but they refused to believe in Jesus. As a result, they forfeited the blessing of God. And this has nothing to do with fairness or injustice. Question 9 of the Catechism again asks, Does not God do man an injustice by requiring in his law? What man cannot do? The answer is no. For God so created man that he was able to do it. He gave him what he needed, but man forfeited what God gave. Man, at the instigation of the devil, in deliberate disobedience, robbed himself and all his descendants of these gifts. And so did God's people of the old covenant reject the revelation that had been made that held the promise of Christ when they rejected Christ. This is not an issue of fairness. This is an issue of God's truth and his holy will established in eternity. We find the Apostle Paul in the text that we've read moving down towards verse 13. Referring to the distinction that the Lord made between twin brothers. Even before they were born, Jacob and Esau. Paul is referring back to what we read in Genesis chapter 21. And we read, uh, 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 as we think of, of God dealing, uh, first of all, with, with Ishmael um, and Isaac. The child grew and was weaned, and Abraham had a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw that the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, was laughing. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. 
And the thing was very displeasing to Abram on account of his son. But God said to Abram, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac, your offspring shall be named. That's what Paul quotes in verse 7. Through Isaac, your offspring will be named. It was according to God's will that Ishmael will be rejected. And then, and then there's the example of his grandchildren, Jacob and Esau. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Twin brothers, born of the same mother. And yet we read that they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, but in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call, she was told the older will serve the younger. And the quotation there, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated, is found in the prophet Malachi in chapter 1. And it's a declaration that God is within his will and within his right to hate those who rebel against him in his holiness. And what is the history of Israel? What is our own history? Apart from the grace of God visited upon us undeserved and sovereignly. It is our continued rebellion and sin against God and his grace. In Luke chapter 13, the Lord Jesus looks upon Jerusalem and says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We hear then, really, the indictment of the unbelieving. And so it is not a matter of injustice that God requires faith when he has given his imprimatur upon all made in his image and likeness and given his word and his law, even through the old covenant. And it's because God is just then that his justice must be poured out upon sin and upon sinners. And so the question that we read second, number 10, asks, will God allow such disobedience and apostasy to go unpunished? Will God choose simply to look the other way? Will a holy God dismiss or discount sin? And the answer is no, certainly not. He is terribly angry with our original sin as well as all our actual sins. Not only the sin of Adam imputed to us, but our own sin heaped upon his sin by which we were stained from birth renders us liable before God to judgment. And the Apostle Paul continues with his argument, picking up in verse 14, asking the question of justice. What we say, is there injustice on God's part? By no means, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion. And that is the electing grace of God. It depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this purpose, for this very purpose I've raised you up that I might show my power in you. And that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. 
So then he has on mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. We considered the hardened heart of Pharaoh last week. We considered that alternating language between the Lord hardening his heart and Pharaoh hardening his heart. We considered the fact that God simply gave Pharaoh over to the wickedness of his own heart. God did not force his will. God need not force the will of anyone for us to sin. He simply removes his hand of merciful restraint and gives us over to what is in our hearts. And through his stubborn rebellion against the word of God through Moses, Pharaoh loses his life. He loses his army. And this had been declared to him. Before the seventh plague, the plague of hail, the Lord sent this word to Pharaoh through Moses in Exodus 9. By now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power, so that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. And it's not unjust of God. He gives Pharaoh increasingly over to stubbornness of heart that he might be destroyed and his people with him. And Pharaoh is pleased to follow the impulses of his heart. And so judgment then is certain. And we've heard the certainty of God's judgment in Psalm 5. You are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. And so we understand that the justice of God will not, cannot allow sin to go unpunished, either now or eternally. Scripture speaks of eternal punishment. The Lord Jesus in Mark 9 speaks of hell as the place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. We read in Revelation 20 of death and hell thrown into the lake of fire, which is the second death. And we're told that if anyone's name is not found written in the book of life, he is thrown into the lake of fire. That is eternal damnation. And God is just to damn sin and to damn sinners. That's why we can't take that curse, God damn, that we hear so frequently, lightly. It's an ultimate word of judgment. Is a holy God justified then? Is he upright in punishing the sin of those who are incapable of good? The answer is yes, for we are all responsible for our own incapability. We're responsible and accountable before God for our sin. And if he is holy, he must punish those who sin against him as creator. And there would not be anything fair or just about God not judging sin. It's by his nature that a holy God judges sin. And so he is terribly angry with our original sin as well as our actual sins and will punish them by a just judgment both now and eternally as he has declared. I'll mention that scripture is clear regarding eternal judgment. And we can read of the pains of hell in scripture. 
But temporal judgments can be harder to discern, harder to define, harder to grasp. Because sometimes people whom we admire, sometimes people whom we think have it made, are actually under the judgment of God and living in torment and, and misery that we have not seen. It was interesting today um, to read an article uh, about something that's coming out, um, a series that's coming out on the life of Mary Tyler Moore. Um, I'm not the only one here. I'm not the only man here who had a, a crush on Mary Tyler Moore as a kid, right? Oh, so beautiful. Uh, and, and, and the character she played, I mean, I was just a little boy, but, but I, I would watch the Mary Tyler Moore show. And, and on Dick Van Dyke, I mean, that was her, her best. Um, and it would seem that she had such a wonderful life. And I didn't know that much about her, her later life. I didn't know that she had been raised in, in a family where her parents were alcoholics. I didn't know that she herself had become an alcoholic, that she suffered from diabetes, that in the last 10 years of her life she lost her vision. Uh, a miserable, miserable condition. And we think of those who, who have, um, you know, amassed fortunes and, and gained fame. But we think they have it made, but not everyone who seems to have it made has it made. And the holding up Mary Tyler Moore is, is an example of God's judgment. That's not my point. My point is that very often what we see does not represent the truth of what people are living with. And those who seem to be riding on the heights of the land may actually be living in the depths of despair. And that depth of despair may well be the chastening hand of God or the hand of his judgment, which is bringing a temporal judgment for sin. God's judgment is just. And that is because the Lord doesn't change. And his standard never changes. Man's capacity to obey God was lost at the fall of our first parents, but that in no way changed the standard of God that was declared in that covenant made with Adam, in that covenant of creation. God requires perfect obedience because he is a holy God, and his justice requires that anything short of perfect obedience then requires the fullness of his wrath, not some wrath, not partial wrath, but the fullness of his wrath poured out. And that third question then asks, but, but isn't God also merciful? Isn't he also merciful? How do we reconcile the justice of a holy God with our desperate need for his mercy and grace. And the Apostle Paul anticipates this question beginning at verse 19 in our text. He says, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? If we're incapable of rendering obedience, if we cannot keep his law, how can God still judge sin? How is that fair? And the answer comes quickly. Who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Well, what does molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Is the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, 
desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. And Paul's addressing both the wrath of God and the mercy of God in the same breath as being of one purpose in God. He's declaring the sovereign authority of God over all creation to do as he will as a potter can do with a lump of clay that is in his hand and that is his possession. And we know from Scripture that our God is a holy God, so everything he does will be an expression of perfect holiness in his will. And that holiness is expressed equally in his wrath and in his mercy. And that's why in our call to worship, in that great declaration that God makes to Moses of his name and his character, as the Lord descends on the mountain in a cloud and and Moses is there sheltered, the Lord passes before Moses and proclaims, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who by no means will clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. What was the response of Moses to this? We're told he quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. Because that's all he could do. Because this is the declaration of a holy God. That he is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And yet a God who visits judgment upon the iniquitous. The Apostle Paul, in the close of our text, quotes Hosea. An offering of God's mercy to the people whom he would set apart for his glory to be recipients of his grace. The full text from which he quotes says, I will betroth you to me forever. This is God speaking to undeserving sinners whom he will redeem. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord. I will answer the heavens and they shall answer the earth. And the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil. And they shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow her for myself in the land. And I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. What is this promise of Hosea? And what is the apostle Paul setting forth? Here are these basic principles, and they're what the Heidelberg Catechism, what our Sinus and Olvianus are presenting to us about the truth of who we are, who God is, and what he's doing in the world. Our God is unchanging in his holiness. The Lord does not change. 
And the standard he set before Adam requiring perfect obedience has never changed. The only thing that has changed is the capacity of man to obey. And that is of our own volition. We have chosen sin. But we were in and with Adam in his fall in the garden. But we have been born into sin and heaped sin upon sin. And brought God's wrath justly upon us. And so we're rendered incapable of pleasing him. But that incapacity in no way diminishes God's holy requirements. He doesn't change. All sin must be judged. The wage of sin is death. And God's justice is sure. And his mercy does not negate or undo his justice. Mercy and justice are expressions of the holiness of God. And you've heard, you heard me use the term before, the doctrine of the simplicity of God. It's so vital for understanding these biblical truths. It doesn't mean that God is simple in, in the sense that, that, that he is not all wise. It means that he is simple in the sense that he is not made up of parts. He's pure holiness. He's not part mercy and part wrath. He is all holiness. And in his holiness, his work is perceived by us as wrath on the one hand and mercy on the other. And he is glorified in all that he does for the glory of his name according to his holiness. And where is this leading us? You know where it's leading us, don't you? It's leading us to Jesus' saving work. It's leading us to the holiness of God perfectly manifested in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If we want to make Jesus' life and ministry only about the love of God, then we make the cross unintelligible, don't we? Because when we contemplate the work of Christ on the cross... We cannot erase the wrath of God for sin poured out as he who knew no sin became sin for us. And that wrath poured out is the holiness of God manifested in judgment that we ought bear, judgment that must be borne, but judgment by the grace of God that Christ bears for us. But it is equally a manifestation of God's love and the Son's love for us, isn't it? Because the holiness of God is manifested in his love for sinners. That he, for the purpose of his glory, would elect some of all the undeserving mass of damnation of humanity to be recipients of grace for the declaration of his praise forevermore. I've said before that in this matter of election, in this convergence of God's wrath and mercy, his justice and his grace, the wonder is not that God has elected some and not others. The wonder is that he has elected any at all because he need not elect any. He would be in his right to destroy all, but in his holiness, it is his will to elect for life those whom he would grant faith, not so that his judgment would not be meted out, 
but that his justice would be satisfied and his judgment meted out on Christ on behalf of those who are given to him as a covenant reward for his covenant faithfulness. No corners are cut. No sin is overlooked. Justice is satisfied and mercy is granted. The holiness of God is manifested. And if judgment were not certain, if the judgment of God were not certain, we would not need a redeemer. And if God were not merciful, there would not be a redeemer. And so God is indeed merciful. His mercy does not trump his justice. They are not at odds one with the other. They are perfectly manifested in redemption. Now do you understand how important all of this is for how we understand ourselves and our God and the world in which we live? This again is why our faith cannot be reduced to emotion or or impulse or feeling It must be grounded in the truth of God and in a world that does not value truth. We must shout forth that this is saving truth and that apart from Christ there is no salvation because people being led by their emotions are being led to hell. And it's not a happy path even though there may be moments of emotional exhilaration. It's important that we know what we need in order to live and to die in the joy of the comfort of Christ's work. How great our sins and misery are. How we are delivered from all our sins and misery. And how we are to be thankful to God for such deliverance. Our God is calling us to know these things. To be assured in these things. To delight in these things. And to proclaim these things in a confused and dark world. That is marked by the misery and the corruption of sin. And this is light. This is light for you. This is light for your family. And this is the light that we are to bear. That our God still requires a perfect obedience He is a just judge and all will come before his judgment seat. But his mercy is offered in the truth of the gospel, in the power and the beauty of Christ's work. Is that where your trust is placed for your salvation? Is that where your joy is found on your best day and your hardest day? Is that the proclamation that you make to others as your greatest need and their greatest need. This is the way of life. Life that is abundant and eternal. Let us pray.